0: Getting started this morning, I did want to refresh your minds. I know you all know this, but just by way of introduction to refresh pastoral preaching hours are accumulative, so only advantage to pastors. So that last week's sermon ended up being just a hair shorter than usual, and all of those minutes transfer to the next week. Advantage pastors. Um, so, I will be cashing those coins in um, today. We have uh, a very um, robust passage before us this morning. This morning's passage, as far as how important it is for us and our time together, is that this passage, perhaps you know, contains the only contact we have with the life of our Lord between His birth narrative and His public ministry at age 30. So, the better part of 18 years after this episode, he returns to the carpenter's bench uh, apprenticing with Joseph and we it goes dark. We don't know what took place for those better part of 18 years that are just in the Lord's provision unnecessary for us to know. Um, so, It moves us then to considering if this be indeed the only passage that contains access that we have to our Lord's life. Prior to his public ministry, it stands out in a very obvious manner that this story here will contain within it critical information for the church. Many believe this account here of what we're moving toward in our time together to be a first-hand account from Mary that Luke interviewed her in his portion uh, working, as he said, to Theophilus in the first portion of chapter 1, that uh, he was investigating and and doing the work of a reporter, um, finding and learning, interviewing. Many believe this to be a first-hand account interview from Mary herself reporting about our Lord's life when he was just 12 years old. Again, it's interesting, I think, by note, the significance of this passage. If I were to ask um, many of you uh, who are not even 30 yet, how difficult would it be for you to provide for all of us a single episode in your life to this point that is the summation of what your life is all about? You know, many of us perhaps still wondering what our life is all about, who we are as an individual, who we are as people, what we are. Um, how difficult would it be, how many in here would select, oh, say, I could tell you what I'm all about, perfectly summarized when I was 12 years old. We might not pick 12, and w- we know undoubtedly we'd pick our, we'd s- skip over our teens, no offense to the teens, we, we, we'd probably skip over those years. To give the best picture forward of really the essence of who we are, what we're all about. But this is exactly what we have in this text before us about our Lord. When he was just a 12-year-old boy, a mysterious yet profound passage for our finding out this morning, what it means that our Lord was both God and man, and the young 12-year-old boy, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at the text with me as we have much to cover, and I won't be able to get to it all. Um, I'll do my best. But look at the text right away in our time together for the significance of this text. Why this episode and not others? There's obviously critical theological information contained within it, and I want to show you just beginning how. Look in verse 39 um, and 40. As was read for you, let me just rehearse. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, again, that's significant for you to note, because he's pounding you with it, as Adam mentioned last week, there's not a single stride on Joseph and Mary's part as parents, or on Jesus, the Son of God, his portion of lawful fulfillment. There's not a single portion that is missing in our Lord's obedience, and, and, and that's not something to skip over but it's something to well receive, and we'll see that just in a moment. But Luke notes yet again that our Lord, having performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, here's where I want your ears to kind of begin as a student this morning, to perk up. This is a critical piece contained for our sakes. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jump down now, because you're going to kind of, in your mind, mark verse 40 in your mind of how to read this text as a good student, the significance of this episode for your sake. You're marking now verse 40, and you're skipping 41 through 51, and you're back down at 52 now. So you're looking at, so, so for instance, framing the text would look something like this. I don't know if your Bible has this layout. But you would see a frame of the passage. It's here, and then there's an episode contained here, and it's framed yet again for you here. So again, this is the structural framework of the entire passage, here and here. And then this episode in between explicates what he's trying to get to you to teach you about this and this. He grew. Verse uh, 52 You drop down and you see it in 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He's hitting you with that because, again, that frames the narrative. That's what he's trying to get you to grasp about our Lord. And then between his growing and his growing, by the way, don't forget now that you've finished the narrative, by the way, he grew. Here's the episode of exactly what I mean by the fact that our Lord did indeed grow. And don't forget, he grew. And if you do revisit the narrative portion in between how I mentioned to you, he grew. And I reminded you at the end, he grew. What is the significance of the portion of this narrative being framed about our Lord growing? Well, if I could, just for a moment, as you now kind of have that visual effect in your mind of the significance of this portion of our Lord growing physically, growing mentally and growing spiritually. The young boy, Jesus, how is this so significant? Well, again, it not only frames the narrative for our reading purposes of how we can kind of have a a, a hook, read hook, so that the hook and the hook help us understand the significance of what we read, but even more so, It is critical to the weight of the very gospel we confess this morning as the church of Christ. How is this portion, or simply could I narrow it down to verse uh, 40 and stop right away with the child grew? Have you thought in the reading of this text that the thought that Jesus grew physically, mentally, and spiritually is significant for me every single day? That's what Luke's saying. He grew, by the way, watch. He grew, don't forget. How is it of such a critical weight to the gospel? Well, let me explain. I want to give this portion just two small heresies that compete with Christian orthodoxy and then give you three reasons why that must be denied and it's denied principally here from this text so that you grasp as the saints... The importance of understanding the mystery of Jesus, your Lord, how indeed he was not just God, but he was true man as well. And how significant it is that you know that he is both God and man, contained in the one boy, grew into the one man, and your Lord and your Savior and mediator, Jesus of Nazareth. The early church knew to fight and defend the true humanity of Jesus from this very passage. Why was it so critical here? Because early Christian rivals, or early rivals to Christian orthodoxy, most often in the first century and early church, embraced, as might you would maybe expect, embraced Jesus' deity, but often denied his humanity. Luke, by divine inspiration, crafts for us a narrative so beautifully constructed for you, the reader, to walk away to know for certain, he says, O Theophilus, that Jesus was both God and man in one person. Consider just two brief examples. I hope not to wear you down this morning with church history. But if I could just give you two brief examples of why this is so important with three then conclusions. Number one, I know you're all waiting for the word, right? Docetism. you are all ready. Are you going to give it to us or should we shout it out to you? I'll provide it. Slow-pitch softball this morning. An early rival to Christian orthodoxy. Was docetism. Now, what's the point? What does that matter? Why does this text? He grew. This is the episode. He grew. Docetism comes along and says, no, 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 no. You're overstating it. Christ only appears to be a human being. This is on the ground in the early post-resurrection community, the early church, competing, rivaling Christian orthodoxy. Those false teachers coming forward in the early church, in the formative days of the church, begin to argue that during the incarnation, Jesus did not actually possess a true body and a rational soul. His growing, his living, and his suffering were merely imaginary phenomena. They yield to us nothing more than an example to live by. That certainly I trust is not our hope this morning. That Christ's growing, living, and suffering was mere imaginary phenomena providing us something to follow by way of example. This was, as you can consider in this text, Jesus grew, this is how Jesus grew. Don't forget, he was true God, true man, all in one, in the perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, it was affirmed that indeed our Lord was fully God and fully man in the Council of Nicaea in 325. Can I give you one more brief example? As I know you're sitting and you're about to provide it, but uh, just easy, easy. Stand down. I got it covered this morning. Apollinarianism. It is yet another example. Don't fall asleep, it's so important. I hope to prove it in the next few moments apollinarianism what was the rival to early orthodox christianity about no 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 reread no. luke's gospel that's not what he's getting at that he did grow that he is true man settle down everyone he is the son of god for sure nobody denies that but easy on the aspect of his humanity it's just imaginary phenomena to set forth a good example or as Apollinarianism came along, or Apollinarius taught, that is, Jesus lacked, as he comes along to the early arrivals to Christian orthodoxy, Jesus lacked not only a true human soul, as Docetism teaches, but he also lacks a true human mind. Well, what does that have to do with Luke's text this morning and the epicenter of the gospel. Well, Apollinarianism went on to teach, therefore Jesus cannot be said to have actually grown and become strong in wisdom. For this would require Jesus to be a mere human being. This was condemned in the Council of Constantinople In 381. So you see Luke's record of Jesus growing right here in our text this morning, growing physically, mentally, and spiritually is actually critical for our understanding of Jesus, our Redeemer, Mediator, and Savior. Perhaps we have not rested long enough and meditated upon the reality of Jesus as true man. It is a mystery. I mean, I grant, I I, I provide that, no doubt. But because it is mysterious, we shouldn't have an allergy to meditating on it. The epicenter of the gospel is contained therein. And the early church practiced this, and it continued to be taught in Christian orthodoxy. To this very day, it is our hope that he not simply, what he did in the first century in Nazareth was some sort of imaginary phenomena that we can all have a good example of. Or that he didn't truly possess a, a, a human being's mind. So, you know, when we get to passages in scripture, like, the child grew in wisdom and knowledge, it's just like, well, you know, either way. Let me put forward three conclusions from this that will perhaps bring it to light how important it is that we grasp what Luke is trying to say in a framed text such as this, for your sake. He grew, guys. Look at this little episode. Don't forget as you go away into John the Baptist. Guys, he grew. Wisdom and in stature. And that's critical to the gospel how so Well, consider number one a first conclusion to the thought of these early church rivals or early rivals to christian orthodoxy and how it's important that we grasp the sense of jesus growing physically mentally and spiritually as attached to the gospel number one consider as i wind down the conclusion to the early church historical debate number one for your sake this morning consider that if jesus is suffering so track with me here Here is simply the conclusion to the matter in this first portion. If Jesus' suffering is imaginary phenomena, you know, like he really, in enduring the hour of the cross, wasn't experiencing physical and spiritual torment. What if your mind goes there and, and your imagining goes there and it's hard for you to read that text and embrace what is actually occurring in that hour. Because you think, somehow it is, I get it, and that's the story, and, and, and that there's meaning there. But at the same time, I, I just can't, imagine, I can't put together how, that re- how did he really, and, and he was God, and then he knew some things, and things came upon him, and he knew other answers that no human being would have. How is it that he could have really been man, and what is the idea that he grew? And in the end, why is it important? Because. If Jesus' suffering is imaginary phenomena, then we, this church, us, Christian saints, have no hope in a physical resurrection of our bodies in the future. That which has been fed and encouraged and nourished our faith in our pilgrim's journey to that day of a future bodily resurrection, those saints who have died, and gone to be with Christ are waiting yet. As John saw them in Revelation, I saw disembodied souls. What's going to occur? Won't they be disembodied forever? Isn't that the idea? No. A physical bodily resurrection is to occur. We are to be clothed. He he did rise to be the first fruits of those who come after him. But of his suffering in his body was simply imaginary phenomena then we have no hope of physical resurrection and with that very stroke we lose Christ in the office of redeemer secondly if jesus not if jesus did not possess a truly human mind as apollinarius taught this is woeful to each of us if jesus did not possess a truly human mind, then the obedience he rendered unto God through the law cannot be imputed to the corruption of our minds either. This leaves us this very hour stripped of all hope of righteousness. We stand as condemned under the weight of the law still if Jesus did not possess a truly human mind. This, with this one stroke, both Docetism and Apollinarianism, of which I know you meditate upon day and night. With this one stroke, Christ is no longer our mediator. We're unclothed before God with no hope of robes of righteousness. His obedience, of which was simply imaginary phenomena, cannot be imputed to our account. Thirdly, the third kind of conclusion to this first sermon I have this morning, and then we'll get to sermon number two, of just simply grasping the weight and the epicenter of the gospel, that Jesus be not just the Son of God in the sense of deity, but indeed that he be the Son of God as the Son of man also, that he be both fully man and fully God, and that both properties truly belong to the one, Jesus of Nazareth. Is number three. If his faith all of you who are here this morning whose faith rests in and receives all of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Hear this matter. If his faith is not actual faith Right, The boy Jesus, he's 12 years old. If his faith is not actual faith rendered unto God in our place, right, as he lived obediently for us and he died for us, if his faith in the Father rising him from the dead or raising him up from the dead, if his faith in the Father as he obeyed the Father's will in dying for his church, if his faith is somehow something, but it's not actual true faith rendered unto God as its true sole object, then neither is it his gift upon resurrection to bestow it upon those he effectually loves. This leaves you if you didn't grasp. This leaves you without the gift of faith. With this stroke of Jesus simply not being true man, not as Luke reports that indeed the boy Jesus grew. He grew mentally he grew physically he grew spiritually no his faith is not real faith he he didn't he didn't exercise faith he didn't he didn't take faith as we do as a vessel and place it solely upon God as its truest object heeding and hearing the word of the Lord and submitting his life and all things unto the law of the Lord for righteousness sake no it's not true faith if it isn't then neither is it his gift to bestow And all are left, apart from faith, to die by works of wickedness. And with that stroke, we lose Christ as Savior. You see, with all of the gospel at stake, Luke, by divine inspiration, interviews Mary. And Mary provides, through the Spirit's leading, an episode here in the young life of Jesus that stands at the center of the gospel. That the child grew physically, mentally, and spiritually, and he did so in submission to the Father for our sakes. This is the consolation of the saints, that Jesus was true man and true God. At this point, we turn to the episode that is recorded for us. As an example, hopefully you have a visual idea of how the text is functioning now. By stopping at verse 40 and grasping the the centrality, the importance that we must meditate on, though it might give a headache, we must meditate upon, study our confessions and creeds to grasp how we confess rightly what Luke is teaching here, that Jesus indeed grew as true man, and became strong as an individual. And he f- was filled as he grew with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon this young boy. An episode now it kind of breaks way in verse 41 as we turned 41 through 51 to see how Jesus is growing presented quite a mystery and a profound uh, uh, life for Joseph and Mary as his parents. And each of us, again, at this point, we might struggle over these texts, you know, to really picture Joseph and Mary as parents to the Son of God. You know, it it just seems like it's too much to wrap our mind around the human texture of it, and we might quickly kind of move forward and move on and and, and not see just the, the profound beauty yet perplexity that struck Joseph and Mary as they have a sense, uh, of course, as you look at at the angel's pronouncement to Mary. And then you see Mary's response of the Magnificat and how she gives praise and and song and poetry unto God for the fulfillment of his purposes. So she clearly has a sense keenly of who Jesus is, but yet we see her in both episodes of chapter two still treasuring things up in her heart that exactly explicating in her mind, like, oh, this is exactly this, and this is exactly how it's working. And there's a sense of of sheer mystery and profundity to Mary as the mother of baby Jesus that, yet again, makes it quite complex and difficult um, for Mary and Joseph as they raise the young Jesus of Nazareth. And this is an episode that gives us insight both into the simplicity of the episode, so we have access to the life of Christ here, quite simply, we see a very typical experience and then it gives us kind of in the second half of the narrative that how the simplicity of it all yeah it's 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 human but then the clouds kind of break away and deep mystery is shown at the same time and don't we all feel that way about him being god and man at the same time well here it is there's a sense of clarity about it and there's a sense of ooh, deep mystery and it's not just for the church but also consider for Joseph and Mary as well. Look at the episode with me, if you will, just for a moment. Verse 41, <clears throat> now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Uh, again, I can't ever read uh, all the portion that I mentioned. I always have to stop and make additional comment. Um, that was a joke, but either way. Um, verse 41, uh, there you, you get a, a picture and a window into godly parenting. All right, so Joseph and Mary are responsible in large part for Jesus' growing in wisdom. Joseph is a godly man, and Mary is a godly woman. And the text is full of that, beginning in chapter 2, chapter 1, through to where we are now. They, They didn't miss an appointment with the law, with our Lord, because they're godly verse 42 and when he was 12 years old they went up according to custom of course they did because they're godly parents they they knew what the law of the lord required and they loved and delighted in the law of the lord so they were there with jesus when he was 12 Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy. Now, it says the boy, Jesus, and it's kind of a repeat comment, but there's a little note for you attached there of what Luke's getting at that attaches you back up to verse 40, that the child grew. The comment there, boy, is emphasizing his youthfulness. So he wants you to track out, again, verse 40, this is important for the gospel. He is true man. So he grew. Verse 42, by the way, he was 12 right now. Verse 43, the boy, again, emphasizing his youthfulness, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, I'm going to stop there just simply to show you the first portion of the narrative in the simplicity of the episode. Here we have the most atypical parenting situation ever, right? I mean, uh, before we make it too common, uh, Mary and Joseph charged with being faithful parents to the Son of God. So again, it, it, there is something certainly atypical about the parenting situation, yet even though it is extremely atypical, it goes through a very typical parental episode, which again, it, it, there's mystery and profundity, yet there's simplicity and accessibility to it all all rolled up into one. So to break down the passage, some of us might be thinking, again, is this some sort of divine mystery that they didn't know Jesus was with them? I mean, who's going to lose them? So it's like, I don't know about this. Think just for a moment. Give some historical contextualization. At this point, going to Jerusalem, there's roughly 200,000 pilgrim journey individuals. I forget what that's called when a person is um, making their pilgrimage. Whatever. There's 200,000 people trying to get to Jerusalem at this point. The uh, 200,000 individuals, roughly speaking... They believe as they, or as they then go toward Jerusalem with all of the people they travel, not simply like Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. They're traveling in caravans, which, you know, we even do that now sometimes with friends and family when we're going someplace. Everybody kind of follows each other and all this, that, and the other, and you try to stay with each other, okay? So they're doing nothing out of the ordinary here, but a very typical experience, making pilgrimage. They're traveling in a caravan, friends, family, loved ones, tribal members, Okay, great, let's all kind of keep together and keep healthy, and if someone runs out of something, provide so on and so forth. Now, that presents somewhat of a logistical problem, as many of us have experienced. As they then leave after pilgrimage, leaving to go home now, again, a whole caravan of people are leaving. So it's not like just Joseph and Mary got up, got dressed, and walked out the door and didn't know until a day later, oh yeah, Jesus is back in the room. There, there's, a, there's, a, there, there's just a, a scene of movement going on as the caravan itself Moves forward. <clears throat> now, a very typical experience is Mary here speaking as a very human mother. Look at verse 48, the response of how Mary explains what she felt when they ended that night and maybe time to go to bed came upon them and they looked around in the caravan for Jesus and didn't find him. W- what was the state of mind of Mary as a mother at that point in time? Look down at the bottom of verse 48. <clears throat> as she speaks to Jesus. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. A very mother-like statement. You know, sometimes you beef up your anxiety by referencing dad's attitude toward it as well. You know, your father and I are angry with you. You know, that always perks everyone up. Oh, dad's involved. Everybody tighten up. Um... So you see, again, there's a simplicity to the episode. You know what you did to your father and I? That sense of motherhood. And at this point in the text, they have been searching for him. By the time they find him, three days. We had a small little episode of this um, very typical parenting situation once we went, made our pilgrimage as a family to Disney World. Uh, so, so everyone, you know, you caravan your way to the pilgrimage of the United States at some given point in time, and then you, you can say, you know, hey, we've been there, and we bowed, and we offered sacrifice, or whatever that is that you do at um, Disney World. But um, the idea, so, so everyone's trying to make it through the masses of people. If you've been there, it is overwhelming, the amount of people not in line only, but just in walking. It, there's mass numbers of individuals. Again, it's a rite of passage in the United States of America, so everyone's there. And as you're moving about the crowd, we had several kids that we were counting, and certain adults were broken down, like, you're supposed to be in charge of these ones, you're supposed to be in charge of these ones, you're supposed to be in charge of these ones. And again, kind of throughout the day, you kind of lose sight of who am I responsible for, or what I hope they're following me, and I hope it's working out well. And as we were moving through, we all didn't, at one point made a left, and um, uh, one member of my family kept going straight. And so we get to the station where we're all getting ready to get in line and get tickets and so forth, and we're doing, okay, where's so and who, so and so. Okay, yeah, here's your ticket. Oh, where's so and so? Um, I don't have them. Do you have them? Do you have them? Do you have them? Do you have them? No, 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 no. And everyone kind of, at that point, you just kind of take a little perimeter search. You know, hey, he's probably right over here, right over there. It's not a big deal. And you just kind of spread out for just the first couple of minutes, and then you turn around as you kind of make faces. You come back together again. You look one another in the eye and you find out. Uh, and then panic sets in. They're gone. They're gone. And at that point now, a 10-yard search or so parameter has yielded up nothing. And oh, you turn around and there's nothing but masses of people everywhere. And who knows? So then you just panic. You run about. And, and, and as we were running on our about, and what felt like to me as a father um, I, I, Dan could speak that he was there I, I, it, For me it felt like At least two hours minimum It was I think Somewhere to the scale of ten minutes I, I think that, that th- As a father it, it felt like Life was ending um, We just ran to the exit To make sure no one could take someone out of the park you know, Your mind goes to the darkest places You, you think like this has probably Already occurred you know, it, whatever it is just it, as a parent that sense of protection care and concern um, now think and, and you have probably have some as I mentioned that to you you probably have some contact with something like that in your life as well where someone came up missing and it just it, it is just totally unnerving put yourself in Mary's position now when she says your father and I have been searching for you in great distress when I found my family member you know you don't know to discipline them, <laughs> to hug them, to be happy, to be mad. You have all of that going on in that one moment. And it was ten minutes of, of, of missing them. Mary searching three days. And let me just suggest to you historically as a mother, again, at that point in time, early Jerusalem was much less sanitized than Disney World. And they went roughly 20 to 25 miles outside Jerusalem before they broke for evening rest. I was probably at any one given point 30 yards. They're measurably 20 to 25 miles away. You can't just run over there real quick. With this thought of the simplicity of the episode of Jesus and be, indeed being a true boy, Mary and Joseph being true parents. Loving this boy Jesus who was simply 12 years old. The simplicity of the episode which Mary comes to Jesus with. She's coming as a mother. She's coming in that simplicity of it all. Don't you know what you did to us? That simplicity gives way to deep profundity. This is where, in the narrative, we kind of make the transition from the defense of Jesus' humanity, and we grasp, as he teaches it to us, the sense of the profundity of the mystery that he is indeed true God. And this was too hard also for for Mary. But look at the text. There's an important detail for us in verse 43, and I'm going to wind down so I don't cash in on too many of my minutes so I can use some more another time. But look at there's an important exegetical detail in verse 43 for us to be able to peel this text apart that it opens up the mystery and the profundity of it all from Jesus' standpoint to instruct us in his sense of knowing that he is indeed God. Even at 12 years old, join with me in verse 43, when the feast ended, they, okay, so the caravan, They were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Do you you see what is going on there? It wasn't like they misplaced him. He stayed behind. This then begins to kind of par into the mystery of this scenario. What does it reveal about Jesus in the sense that he already, as 12 years old, chose willfully to see the caravan depart and stay behind? This intentional choice on the part of Jesus in the text reveals his self-awareness at 12 years old that he has a unique relationship to God his Father as the second member of the Trinity. There is a messianic awareness for the boy Jesus, even here at age 12. Look at the rest of the text and see what takes place then for Jesus in this sense of self-awareness of who he is. He chose to stay behind. Why? Look at the verse 46. And after three days, they found him. And you want to mark in your text, they found him in the temple. This is Mary telling Luke in an interview. Sitting among the teachers is where he was positioned. At the temple at 12 years old, he decided to stay behind and be there, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Again, he's genuinely being tutored in the word of the law through Joseph and Mary. He has a sense of the promises of God through the festival of Passover. God is faithful to his people. He embraced the promises of salvation by faith. Here he is sitting at the temple place. And they were amazed at his sense of comprehension of it all. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they come running up. They were astonished. His mother said to him, son, son. Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And here this measure of mystery comes out. Mary reflects on her own thoughts at the time, verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. I have in conclusion three observances here, three marks of the text that I want to note for you as to why Jesus, at 12 years old, intentionally sought the temple. Number one, we learn of our Lord, that he loved God. Again, that seems obvious, right? But we must consider it. That Jesus, in our place, he stood. And he loved God, his Father. This all matters for you in the gospel. As you rely on his righteousness, not your own. That when you have not, he as your Savior has. Jesus, at 12 years old, loved God. He sought the temple place Because there, God uniquely communed with his people. One author concludes this, quote, this was the place that satisfied his young soul. Secondly, as a son of God, he loved God. And number two, he loved the word of God. Number two, he loved the word of God. You find Jesus there at 12 years old. And as Luke says, he's just a boy. But he experienced communion with his father. How? How? through discussing, teaching, and expounding upon the word of God at the temple. How important is it for us then that we would find communion with God as our Lord has demonstrated through the word of God and time spent in it and around it. Not on isolation mysticism, but we commune with him through his word. So our Lord has on our behalf. Number three, and the final point of the mystery of the episode, where Jesus knows he belongs to the Father, and that he shares a unique role and purpose as the Son of God, even at 12 years old. As he explains to Mary, did you not know I must, and in your mind, Mark, must in the text, I must be in the temple? Because third, he loved serving god jesus expresses to mary that by divine compulsion he needed to fulfill his father's will and be about communion with his god i must be i want to make one last note on the text because we might think that well it seemed a little bit sassy Maybe we've read the text and like, you know, that's a kind of a a sassy way to get at your mom when she shows up worried. That's kind of a weird way to handle the passage because we know he's not sassy. Think just for a moment that it indeed wasn't a way to sass his mom. But to help her grasp the mystery that he himself was grasping. Because if it was a sass at his mom we wouldn't see Luke clarify the episode as it might naturally sound in verse 50 uh, and 51. But what we see in verse 48 and 49 is Jesus' obedience unto his Father is primary as the Son of God. And yet, this doesn't antagonize a relationship between his earthly parents and his heavenly father. But he, again, obeying the law to honor your father and mother. These two things are not at odds. But they are prioritized as Christ sees the father's will and then he submits also to his parents as well. It's not a rebellion. Verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother, just this sense of simplicity, profundity, fearfulness, just, I don't even know what I've got in my hands, in a sense. She joyfully treasured up all these things in her heart. That this boy Jesus is God as her Savior, and indeed is human, and her son. And let us never lose the gospel distinctive. So Luke writes one last word, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man for the next 18 years. We'll see him again roughly around 30. Let's pray. Father, I... Thank you for this text. I pray that we will grasp the weight of it, the glory of it. We will rejoice over the church defending it and receiving it and resting upon it. We thank you for the portrait of Jesus we have been given. We thank you for its simplicity, accessibility, that we aren't perfect parents. Mary and Joseph probably felt less than perfect in those moments, and yet your grace is sufficient for all. So, Lord, we thank you and we rest upon it. We thank you for your grace displayed to Mary and Joseph. We praise you for her faith-filled response to your work and your mysteries. Might we as your people also have a faith-filled heart towards such staggering mysteries that are yet critical to our deliverance, that you are both God and you are truly man. A body has been raised, and so will ours if we rest in you alone and receive all of you. In your name alone do we then.